Well, I'm looking forward to him rejoining. He's had a pretty quiet week. Below the Line, Federal Election 2022. Brought to you by La Trobe University with The Conversation. What do we know about liberal Gladys Liu? She spread fake news on Chinese messaging apps. She's from Hong Kong and they're engaged in what I think is a sewer tactic here. Welcome to Below the Line, a 2022 federal election special podcast brought to you by The Conversation website. From polls to party spin to policies, during this election campaign, we'll break free of party, media and populist lines. It's brought to you by La Trobe University together with The Conversation website. I'm John Fain from the University of Melbourne, and I'm joined by political scientists, professors Annika Gaia, Simon Jackman from the University of Sydney, and Andrea Carson from La Trobe University, and we'll try to cut through the election noise with a couple of episodes a week, all the way through until polling day. And I think we might do a post-mortem afterwards as well, just to see how wildly inaccurate all our predictions actually turned out to be. Today, we're going to have a look at the so-called ethnic vote. And we'll ask, first of all, does it exist? Is it monolithic? Is it cohesive? Does anyone control it? And how do the ethnic Chinese, Greek, Italian, Jewish, Muslim, Indian votes stack up? Where do they matter the most? Before we get there, though, Let's have a look at the last week where the leader of the opposition, the Labor leader, Anthony Albanese, has been sneezy. He's been caught up in isolation. First of all, Annika, how do you think this has impacted on this last week of the campaign? Has it been a positive or a negative for the Labor Party? Well, I think when you asked me last time, I said it wasn't going to make a substantial difference. And because I think I was right, I'm just going to highlight that again. As I said, we've all adjusted to pandemic life and communicating via Zoom, on TV, social media as a mainstay of life and campaigning. Look, if anything, I think it's done um, good things for Labor. Uh, I'm a little bit disappointed that Anthony's actually coming back because it's what it's done is enabled Labor to showcase its brunch bench. And I think they've performed incredibly well throughout the campaign. So what, they should keep him in ISO for another week? Well, you know what? He's sort of said that he's really heeding the advice of his doctors, that he should be taking it pretty slow for the first few days. So you know what? Sorry, was that medical doctors or spin doctors? <laughs> that's, a very, that's a very astute observation, John. So we may, in fact, you know, see him be fairly quiet. Sure, we've got the Labor launch on Sunday in Perth, and he'll obviously have to play a key role there. But... Um, there is the window of opportunity for people like Jason uh, and Penny Wong and Jim Chalmers to continue their work. Carso, how have you measured it in terms of media appearances? Of course, he's vacated the field. The Prime Minister had a bit of a dig at him saying, well, when I was in COVID, I so I was busier than he's been. Uh, I think most people go, oh, come on, different people experience COVID in different ways. But from a media point of view, as Professor of Press, how have you seen it? Yeah, we've got that grab in the intro of uh, Scott Morrison having a go at Anthony Albanese, which seems a little unkind given the man's actually been unwell. I've been looking at the share on digital media with Facebook and what we see is that Scott Morrison's been very prolific in the last week. He's had more than quarter of a million interactions, which is almost double what Anthony Albanese has had. He's got 25% of the share of chatter online, at least looking at Facebook, which is the most used platform in Australia. Anthony Albanese is coming in at 13%. So he has been doing something in the last week in isolation, or at least his team has. 
Sure, that's quantitative, not qualitative. A lot of the stuff for Scott Morrison in the last week, those he's been on the defensive, on the back foot, because it seems the wheels are falling off on every topic, on every issue, whether it's the Solomons or interest rates or Matt Canavan on climate. He's constantly defending rather than moving forward. So That's true, John, but he's also posting more videos, so he's being more proactive in that way. But Tanya Plibersek's the one who's doing really well online. She's coming in fourth just behind George Christensen, and then it's Josh Frydenberg coming in at fifth with Julian Hill in between, who a lot of our listeners may not know. He's a Melbourne MP for Labor um, who happens to excel in the TikTok space and is very good on digital media. Well, he's very funny. Simon, how have you seen this last week and this remarkable phenomenon that it seems just about everything that the Liberal Party are trying to push seems to be blowing up in their face? For me, it was uh, back to the future. It took us back to the, the small target uh, elbow that we had over the bulk of this cycle and uh, a government that found itself on the back foot having to explain away repeated bouts of bad news. The week started in the aftermath of the Solomon's announcement with um, Penny Wong landing some solid blows. We had a, perhaps only political junkies noticed it, but I thought a cut through performance from uh, Jason Clare, consistent series of strong media appearances from Jill, Jim Chalmers, who I think really landed some um, nice one-liners, nice cut-through grabby um, retorts um, in, in media interviews, some of them up against uh, opposite numbers from the coalition. And then by the end of the week, we had the, the inflation numbers. And it was a week that I think, you know, you give the week to Labor when um, their leader was in ISO and prompting that remark from Morrison. The betting markets, for what it's worth, have largely almost totally recovered. Uh, back to the position they were at the start of the campaign, where it was being scored roughly a 70-30 proposition for Labor after uh, that bad misstep by Albo and Launceston on the very opening opening morning of the campaign that dropped uh, to uh, briefly to be 50-50. It's now almost all the way back to being a 70-30 election. And the polls too, John, last little bit of data there's nothing in the national polls that suggests a, at least a strong recovery, the scintilla of recovery in the coalition's poll position uh, in, the, in the publicly available polls. All right, we need to move on. We're going to talk about the debates about debates, and there's been some candidate debates and some policy debates coming up and so on. But our main course for today is to have a look at the so-called ethnic vote. Is there such a thing? Is there a Chinese, Italian, Greek, Jewish, Indian, Muslim vote? Is it cohesive? Does anyone direct it? And how much do we actually know about where it goes and how it matters? And we'll call on the expertise of University of Melbourne expert Dr. Wilfred Wang on the Chinese vote in particular in just a moment. But for the overview, Annika, Professor of Parties, take us through, if you could please, how we measure and what it means when we talk about an ethnic vote. Just to answer the very last question you posed first, John, we don't know enough about how different non-English speaking populations, and that's the, the, the word, the term ethnic vote is sort of an umbrella term for those groups. We don't know enough about how they vote and we don't also know enough about their, their participation in politics. So what we, what we do know is that during the sort of the 1980s and 1990s, we really could speak about um, an ethnic vote insofar as um, immigrant populations, particularly from Southern Europe and Asia, uh, tended to preference or, or direct their vote towards the ALP. 
Now, since around the 2000s, uh, the pattern of immigration has changed quite significantly in, in Australia. Um, we have a lot more uh, people coming in from India. We have um, migrants who are skilled workers now. So the sort of socio-demographic characteristics of our ethnic population have changed markedly. So we can't draw the same sort of generalisations about the nature of the ethnic vote now. It's very much, much more fragmented. Um, Simon can give us some more statistics, but if we think about 2019, for example, in electorates such as Chisholm, where, where Gladys Liu is our, is our sitting member. Eastern suburban Melbourne, yep. Yeah, exactly. Now, 2019 election happened on the back of the same-sex marriage postal vote, uh, as everyone might recall as well. The discussion around the postal vote was how some electorates, particularly in Western Sydney, which had high migrant populations, were much more socially conservative and voted against the same-sex marriage survey. And then the implication for 2019 is that these populations, particularly the Chinese population, would also be more politically conservative and therefore align more with the coalition's vote. My colleagues, uh, Sean Ratcliffe and Juliet uh, Peach, did some fantastic work unpacking this vote in 2019 through the Australian Cooperative Election Survey. And they found that that assumption that the Chinese vote moved towards the coalition was indeed false. Uh, Chinese voters didn't change their preferences towards the coalition in any greater numbers than the Labor Party did. So coming into 2022, John, it's a much, much more complex picture of what the ethnic vote is, how different constituencies or communities vote in different parts of Australia, and whether or not there is a general allegiance with either the Labor Party or the Coalition. Okay, well, what actual data can we find, Professor of Polls, Simon Jackman? Well, I won't be relying on polls for this one. Um, this comes to us from... Um, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the 2016 census, which asks everybody, do you speak a language other than English at home? And, and if so, which language? And when we group those responses by uh, electoral divisions, um, what you find is that there's a very, very strong correlation between uh, the rate at which an electorate has non-English speaking households and the vote. And it's not surprising. Um, the more non-English speaking the electorate is, the, the stronger the Labor vote. And, and the other thing for everybody to note, and I think you know, everybody listening to this will be aware of this uh, perhaps innately, but it's worth saying, it is fundamentally, uh, John, a Sydney and Melbourne phenomenon. Um, we're talking about high concentrations of non-English speakers um, and um, being in Western Sydney and outer metro uh, Melbourne. For instance, the electorate with the highest rate of, um, of non-English speaking is in New South Wales. It's uh, as is the number two, as is the number three. Those are the seats uh, uh, like Watson, uh, McMahon, out in Western Sydney. Blacksland uh, comes, is on that list as well. Used to be represented by, by, by Paul Keating. And indeed... Sydney's growth corridor is out here. Yep. And that's an interesting point, John. You might even say the growth corridor is even one ring further out now. Okay. Which raises a really interesting point that I hope our guest can help answer. Just before we get to Wilfred Casso, anything on ethnic media that's relevant to our discussion before we introduce Wilfred? Annika made a good point about how the demographic mix has changed over time. And if we look at the Indian vote and the number of Indians in Australia, that's more than doubled from in the last 10 years. It's now 721,000. 
And as diasporas go, that's the second highest group other than those born in England that are now voters of in Australia. They outnumber the ethnic Chinese vote, I believe. Is that correct? Yes, they do. It's overtaken the Chinese vote. And they're also uh, have a, a background of democracy. They're English speakers. They're politically engaged. And so you asked me about the media. Well, it's no accident, I think, that we hear uh, our Prime Minister talking about curries and how much he loves them. And I think that's a bit of a nod to that community to try and woo them in. Um, Michaela Cash is also regularly talking about her love of curries and they realise this is a, a big and vibrant uh, potential vote share that they can get into. Yes, it can backfire too. I remember John Howard thinking he was wooing the Indian vote by playing cricket and he was so bad at it they laughed at him. <laughs> and I understand from Indian friends that they also do not respect the Prime Minister's curry making and regard it as a bit of a, a cartoon image of what a curry really should be. But let's not get into the culinary side of things. Instead, Dr. Wilfred Wang is from the Media and Communications Department at the University of Melbourne and is my colleague here and an expert on the ethnic Chinese vote insofar as we can say there is a cohesive thing. Wilfred, thank you very much for joining us. First of all, do we try and identify how fragmented is this so-called Chinese ethnic vote? Yeah, thanks, John, and thanks for having me. Uh, yes, I think it's definitely fragmented. It's no one cohesive, uh, monolithic kind of vote there. The Chinese, although uh, interesting, just pick up on Andrea's point. Yes, although the Indian uh, community that have overtaken the Chinese number, but they count Chinese number from China. They actually, that particular number didn't include anyone from like Macau, Hong Kong, and Southeast Asian. So, uh, so if you put that together, I actually have a bit of doubt whether the Indian population has really taken over the Chinese diaspora. But on that front, also illustrate how diverse it is. You know, Hong Kong and mainland China itself, you are really talking about really two group of Chinese people who have very different political past, political viewpoint, and just on that common, you know, common topic about, you know, how this China threat, you know, it's very different, I would say. And there would be ethnic Chinese voters who identify as ethnic Chinese, but their families have been here since the gold rush, for instance. That's precisely right. And we do see that, I think, as a few weeks ago, that the age actually make uh, that comment quite rightly, saying that the, we are seeing the, a, a group of young, younger Chinese voters who actually grew up here. Not only they grew up here, their parents grew up here as well. So uh, how they're going to vote is something that we haven't quite seen before. So it would be quite interesting to see that this time. How engaged are they? If you sort of more, you know, thinking about the, if I just give a brush, uh, thinking about a younger generation, probably not that different with uh, a lot of what, what we might call the local younger generation in Australia. But, uh, and likewise, you know, uh, overall the population, I don't think they are that engage, uh, especially around this time, there is uh, actually a distraction in within the Chinese community, especially from mainland China. That is the COVID situation in China. So I actually compared the kind of a online WeChat discussion with two thousand, like last time, two thousand nineteen. Actually, there, this time around, there are less coverage discussion on WeChat about Australian election uh, comparing to last time, and but there are actually a lot more discussion about you know when Shanghai can be you know. Un- 
unlocked, if you like, when uh, whether there's another lockdown. So I think that huge distraction actually have pulled away some people's attention. With that said, there are always, um, you know, very active people. Uh, I think especially just over the past two days when Kevin Rudd uh, was walking down Box Hill, uh, that actually attracted quite a bit of traction, whether you like him or not, or Labour supporter or not, that actually was quite a bit of traction. So I won't say uh, there's a huge huge engagement but uh, you know as we are getting close to the election we will see more attention from the community i grew up in the jewish community here in melbourne although i'm not a, a an active religious jew anymore but it very much was the case back when i was growing up that uh, there were certain leaders and pivots in the community there were opinion setters and sometimes even religious leaders rabbis who would sermonize telling people this is how you should direct your vote, this is what's best for the Jewish community. Does the same thing happen in the Chinese community? Oh, definitely. At least that's based on, uh, you know, that's what, what a lot of uh, political party, the major party are actually bet, 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 betting on that. Uh, you know, some of our polit- politicians, including the sitting member of Chisholm, like Gladys Liu, has been quite targeting uh, different community groups like business groups, uh, you know, uh, older Chinese community, community, for example. I would expect that, uh, you know, her opponent, political opponent, will be doing exactly the same. And Chinese people, uh, especially those uh, who are more vulnerable, like older generation or new arrival, yes, they do tend to, uh, you know, if you like, follow uh, those community as a collective kind of decision making, uh, as a collective trend of moving. Uh, with that said, again, the Chinese community is extremely fragmented and diverse. You So you are not only looking at one or two, uh, you know, community leader, you are really looking at a lot of them. And some of them, yeah, I actually have no idea who they are uh, as a Chinese Australian myself. All right. And what media do they consume? Because that's been a huge issue in the past. And in some ways, in fact, it's it's been a, um, a source of some scandal in the past when various media empires in the Italian or Greek or Jewish or Muslim communities or whatever it might be have tried to channel a particular vote in particular directions. Yeah, that depends on the, I guess, their, well, uh, how well they speak uh, and read English. Uh, so those who, uh, with a good English level, they do still engage with the traditional mainstream media like ABC, DH, and etc., etc. Uh, obviously, if the English uh, is an impediment to their ability to, uh, to assess information, for example, then yes, WeChat has become, as we ha- we all know too well these days, that has become the main channel for source of information and uh, yeah. So uh, uh, with that said, you know, if those who are good at with English actually do look at both sides as well. So it's not just because, uh, because they can read English, so they only look at the Australian English one. I mean, this all comes to a head in Chisholm because, as we know, it's got a sitting member who's Hong Kong born and it's the most marginal seat in Victoria. It's at 0.5%. And it also is the seat with the most number of candidates in Australia with 12 candidates going for this seat. Um, There's some attack ads that are running online on both sides. There's a particularly nasty one from the Labor Party criticising Gladys Liu for the $300,000 that she had to return or her organisers had to return back to the Liberal Party of a fundraiser eight or nine years ago. And then there was also the court judgment where she and her team were criticised for using the colour purple at the last election, which was thought to mimic the AEC and to um, give a sense that it was giving direction under the auspice of the AEC, the Australian Electoral Commission, about where voters should go. How effective 
are these attack ads? Do you think they're reaching the constituents that they're targeting? And how much does it matter when the Prime Minister defends Gladys Liu like he's done this week on Sky News and in other press conferences? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I think that the Labour one uh, in particular, I actually don't think the, the Labour attack was actually targeting the Chinese community. They actually did that on Facebook. And I think it's from the Queensland Labour rather than the local Victorian Labour. So actually, I do find that a, a little bit interesting. I don't think it will have any impact on the Chinese community, uh, so to speak, uh, at least not in a large scale. Uh, but I do see those attacks do, uh, do get, uh, I guess, replicated in the, some of the private forums room in the Chinese uh, WeChat uh, side here. So, uh, but I really don't think, I think just like many Australians, a lot of Chinese voters have already made up their mind, uh, especially about the party, especially about Gladys Liu. Uh, I just don't think that will change too much. Uh, while as it comes to the Prime Minister, also, I, uh, yeah, it's more probably thinking about uh, who the Prime Minister is. Um, so it's interesting when Prime Minister showing up with Gladys Liu or making any comments about uh, Gladys Liu. Actually, I think that will just reinforce people's perception about him. So again, I think a lot of Chinese have already made up their mind about this Prime Minister. And yeah, I don't think that will change much. Wilfred, what impact, if any, does it have when, for instance, a senior politician as Peter Dutton, the Defence Minister, says that the only way to preserve peace is to prepare for war with China? Does that ripple through the Chinese community and does it work for or against the government's prospects in a seat with a heavy ethnic Chinese vote like Western Sydney or uh, Eastern Suburban Melbourne? Yeah, it's been a play out quite a bit over the past few days uh, in the Chinese community. Um, I don't think that helps uh, to attract Chinese vote, so to speak, and nor does it help to, you know, really build a community sort of uh, resilient, uh, you know, cohesion on that front. Uh, yeah, there's been a lot of, let's say, negative opinion about Peter Dutton in particular, and also to a great extent, a lot of criticism uh, against Scott Morrison from the community actually also framed towards this idea of that he failed to handle the Australia. China relationship, uh, in a, you know, in a mature way, if you like. So, uh, and just on that, you know, it's not helping also thinking about the cost of living, just like anyone else's in Australia. Aust Chinese Australian also cared about cost of living, except, uh, we tend to, they tend to frame that through the Australian China relations. Like they sort of blaming that, you know, the, the high price has something to do with the uh, deteriorating trade relation between China and Australia, which you don't really see that in other part of the, uh, on, in the public discussion. So yes, I think, I actually think we'll work against that, especially thinking about the kind of voter we are having today in the Chinese community. There are a lot more from the mainland China. And increasingly, again, that's been made in the uh, media commentator that, uh, it's really growing away from that Tiananmen Square generation that people, you know, it's, it's the, the, the children, even the grandchildren of those generations these days. And yeah, they have quite a different, I, I would say, perception and memory about those political events that's, you know, really getting a bit further away. So is there a difference between the parents and the children in how they vote? Sorry, the parents who settled post Tiananmen Square, for instance. We've seen with, with the wave of Vietnamese migrants. We've seen it with the wave of Greek migrants, the wave of Italian migrants, Turkish migrants, anything you care to look at. The parents seem to have one level of affiliations, but the children develop sometimes quite different ones. Is that happening in the Chinese community too? 
Yes, I do. Uh, actually, um, over the time, you know, trend, we, we normally think about, especially in the 90s, that would be more Chinese vote will more in line with ALP. Uh, obviously, um, Bob Hoss policy that help a lot of them stay here. And of course, I'm sort of, again, it's hard to generalize because they're so diverse and different in the Chinese vote. But gradually, when a lot of Chinese um, people, migrants, start doing small businesses, so they start shifting their vote uh, to more liberal front. That's why there's this perception that Chinese votes are, tend to be a lot more liberal and conservative. But with the younger generation, I think it's sort of changing to another direction. And again, I think someone in the media made that comment that actually it's the Greens vote. I think Anthony Green actually made that point himself. Uh, correct me if, if I'm wrong. But actually, if you look at the Greens vote, actually it's not too bad in those so-called Chinese uh, electoral at all. Like it's around 11%, 10%, even 12%. And uh, I was just looking back at the same-sex marriage one. Uh, Chisholm actually have 61.6% said yes. So you are sort of seeing that. And I know even at some older generation, uh, the issue of climate change and environmental issue are start popping up. Uh, which we really didn't have that, you know, if you're sort of talking about 10 years ago. So it's changing for sure, I think. All right. And before we let you go, you've just contributed a piece to the Conversation website, which also hosts this podcast, about fake news and how to, how to combat that in migrant communities. In a minute or two, um, for those people who want to, they'll go and read your article. But for those who might be time poor, how do you combat fake news in migrant communities? Two main points just in light of time. Firstly, maybe use a little bit of SBS. Uh, uh, in that sense, the government should engage with SBS a little bit more. So that's like utilize their service to sort of really channel through the credible authority uh, information that's needed. They did that uh, during the COVID, which was actually a good model. But I, I would just say uh, they never quite did the, did the same, same thing uh, previously. And I hope they will continue to do that. The second point we sort of po- touched on already is that really giving a better, I would say, trend Training and digital literacy training to the community leaders who, who they play a very important role in uh, helping the community to get a sense of what's going on around the world and make a co- informed decision. So I think, uh, yes, so maybe really building up their confidence, their literacy around uh, information. So helping the community to become a lot more res- resilient against you know, fake news and the spread of misinformation. Wilfred, it's been absolutely invaluable to be able to pick your brains and thank you. And of course, there would be equivalent experts in pretty much every ethnic community we'd care to look at. But we thought since it was so front of mind, the issues to do with China and the Chinese community, that it was best to concentrate on your area of expertise. And thank you for lending us your brain and your time today. Dr. Wilfred Wang from the Media and Communications Department at the University of Melbourne joining us here on Below the Line. Annika and Simon, what do you make of what we've just learned about the Chinese or so-called, but apparently much more fragmented than realised, ethnic Chinese vote? Annika, let's start with you. Yeah, I think Wilfred made some really, really interesting points about the diversity of, of the vote, particularly amongst the younger generations, looking much more, I suppose, like Australia um, uh, in, in general, Australian voters in general. And I also think the, the point about the community leaders is a really, really important one because we're seeing political parties trying to exploit this idea that ethnic communities can be influenced you know, because they haven't been socialised into the political system, because they are tight-knit, geographically concentrated communities. So we see those tactics um, being employed by party leaders. We've also been seen them being employed when we think about branch stacking in political parties as well. So there is a, a really sort of complex relationship there between 
the vote, but also the participation of ethnic Australians within political parties and parties. We, we've spoken about them in terms of their hostility to women. I would say political parties are an even more hostile space um, for people of non-English um, speaking backgrounds in Australia. Simon? Um, I, a couple of observations. Um, one is the diversity argument always, I think, is, is one worth paying attention to. John, the fact he, he didn't bite too hard on your question about um, the way the China debate plays in those households, um, making the, I think, really helpful observation that cost of living is just a salient an issue in an ethnic household, a non-English speaking household, um, as it might be um, in an English speaking household. And I, I think that's a point really well made. Yes, it certainly piques my interest and can't help but think how the talk about China as a strategic competitor, how does that play in you know one of Australia's largest non-English uh, speaking segments? The other little bit piece of data I'd throw on the table here, there are only 11 electorates in the country where the proportion Chinese um, gets above 10%. We're not talking as yet 20, 30, 40% of the electorate um, being Chinese speaking or Mandarin speaking. The way I'm using the term there is actually ensemble, um, Mandarin plus Cantonese and, and other uh, dialects. But um, it, it is very much concentrated. Um, and there's only, you know, Menzies and Chisholm uh, uh, make the list, but the rest of that top 10 is all Sydney. Um, so it's eight Sydney seats and two Melbourne seats uh, that we're talking about here. And, and, and the, the most um, uh, Chinese-speaking electorate in the country is Benelong. I think it's a great embarrassment for Australian political science that we don't understand better um, the, the way that um, a, the concentration of, non of Chinese speakers in, in, in an electorate like Benelong, from Howard's demise forward, uh, or over the period that Howard held the seat, through him losing the seat quite spectacularly in 07 and onward, Benelon goes against the grain. Yes, it's, it's uh, you know, 17, 18% Chinese speaking, but as a liberal seat, cuts against the stereotype that non-English speaking, it was good news for Labor. There's a couple of PhDs in this because one of the phenomenon we're also seeing now is the maturation of some of these politically savvy ethnic community candidates coming into the party political system and seeking pre-selection, occasionally winning, occasionally failing, but either way, starting to sharpen their elbows and make their presence felt. And I'd, I'd expect between this year's election and the next one, we're going to see a lot more of that. And our parliament, which is remarkably white bread, compare it to Canada. I mean, you know, Canada's got... Uh, there's a minister in the Canadian government who was an Afghan refugee. There's a minister who wears a turban. There are ministers who wear hijabs. You know, there, there are people in the government, not just the parliament, but actually on the front bench and in the government ranks who represent the ethnic diversity of Canada, which is on a similar profile to ours. But in Australia, they're remarkable for their absence rather than their presence. Look, we've given it a really good thorough look in particular from the Chinese perspective. We'll see where we get to between now and polling day, whether or not some other issues arise. We're well over time and we need to move on. We haven't looked at the Middle Eastern bloc, the Jewish vote, supposed Greek, Italian and so on. 
All of those are fertile ground, but we're running out of time. So we need to move to our final course. We've done the entree. We've done the main course. Now let's get to dessert. There's been a whole lot of debates about debates, and we're starting to see in just the last few days and the next few days, some candidate against candidate debates and some minister and shadow minister debates. Carso, first of all, how important are these when they're played out on the public sphere? Some of them are televised. Some of them are just in town halls. Well, I think it's good for democracy, for the communities to be able to hear who might be representing them and to hear what the incumbents got to say. And so on Radio in Melbourne yesterday, we had Gladys Liu up against Karina Garland, mainly talking through the radio. Did you hear it? How did it go? I did hear it. I thought it was a little unfair, actually, because you've got a very polished media performer host in the form of Raf Epstein with two uh political candidates, one of them the incumbent, that haven't done a lot of mainstream media experience. Well, that's that's their problem, isn't it? How they present themselves is up to them and their party and their ma- their managers, their wranglers. Yeah, you would say that, John. But it, it just it felt pretty awkward listening sometimes that they went across party detail and when they were was fairly scant. But Is there a winner or a loser? In my mind, I thought the incumbent did a better job, actually. Okay. Yeah. I guess it's in the eye of the listener or in the ear of the listener. Mm-hmm. Zoe Daniels uh, had a debate against Tim Wilson in a town hall setting. It wasn't just the two of them, though. There was a whole... That's right. It was the other candidates. I, I didn't hear that one. Um, but I think it's good that they're out there in the community and they're letting those that are voting for them hear what they've got to say for their for themselves. And Simon, there were similar debates up in Sydney. Uh, Allegra Spender and her opponent, Dave Sharma, were up against each other also at a town hall. How'd that go? It was the Sydney cricket ground. Oh, sorry, I didn't realise it was in a religious setting. (laughs) In the members. So yes, nailed it. Sacred. Look, what was really interesting to me, like so much of these, you know, and I I do have to declare the conflict of interest again, that that I am doing some consulting for some of the C200 uh, group. Just the way the media reaction to these uh, candidates, the Australian and some of the other Murdoch uh, mastheads, uh, News Corp mastheads, just running so hard, um, uh, both in op-ed space, but also from sort of news of the day stories um, about what a disaster it would be if uh, independents uh, were elected. That's a good point, Simon. It's occupied the front page of the Adelaide Advertiser today, where uh, the seat of Boothby with Joe Dyer, who's one of the independents, contesting that with the furore over whether she's a dual citizen or not. Oh, that old chestnut coming up again. How can anyone be so silly as not to sort that out before they announce their candidacy? Sorry, rhetorical question. <laughs> These debates, unless there's a knockout blow, and we've got the Treasurer and the Shadow Treasurer debating at the National Press Club in the next few days. So if these are just bits of set political theatre, Andrea, why do people bother? And what does it tell us if there's more and more of these debates as we get to the finish line? Well, I think the most telling thing is about how readily the Prime Minister wants to have these debates. He's already said yes to a proposal by Channel 9 for a May 8th debate, which would be prime time uh, on the 60 minutes time slot. That's on Mother's Day. Not sure the audience wants to see that, but certainly the politicians want to do this. And usually what happens is that the incumbent doesn't want to have a debate because they don't want to elevate their opposition to the same level unless, of course, they feel like they're behind. And then they want every 
audience that they can possibly get. Another one that's quite telling is the treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, has proposed a television debate up against his Climate 200 candidate, Monique Ryan. She said no, which I think is probably wise because that's a very big theatre. But the fact that the treasurer is so keen for that tells us that he's worried. So he's taking on Jim Chalmers at the press club. He's daring or challenging his rival in the seat of Kuyong. You're saying this tells you that their internal polling tells them they have to go out there and try and recover lost ground. Exactly, John. They know they're on the back foot, doing their best to get whatever voter's attention that they can. Can I just sort of uh, draw everyone's attention to Slovenia? I know it's a very odd thing to say at the end of an episode of Below the Line, but uh, Slovenia had its parliamentary election, 24th of April, and they had the most interesting and ludicrous debate amongst all of their party leaders. So they had 12 people on stage, not just the, the main two, and the debate was was really fiery. By the end of it, I think there were three people left on stage. So, you know, just thinking forward to the debates that have been proposed on Channel 7 and Channel 9 and at the press club, why don't we think Are you saying you got physical, Annika? <laughs> it, yeah, well, well, one candidate stormed off the stage, tripped over the podium and crashed off the screen. Apparently he was unhurt, but I think it made for very good television. So I'm just... There's the insiders. There's the insiders playoff this weekend. Yeah, yeah, it's political survivor. Vote them out, and off they go. They're taken out and you know, pushed off into a into an abyss. Just proposing to shake things up a little bit. Why don't we invite a few more people into our into our national debates and see what happens? Well, it would be fascinating. Look, it's uh, it's been a lively episode, and I've learned a lot from it today, as I'm sure everybody listening has. We'll see where we get to next week. Thank you indeed, Professor of Parties. Annika Gallia, Professor of Poll, Simon Jackman, both from the University of Sydney, Professor of Press, Andrea Carson from La Trobe University. You've been listening to Below the Line. It's presented by me, John Fain, Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Melbourne. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you'll also enjoy Michelle Grattan's interviews with political players and experts, also presented by The Conversation Australia. And to listen or subscribe, search Politics with Michelle Grattan on The Conversation Australia website or your favourite podcast app. Our producers, Courtney Carthy and Benjamin Clark, will speak to you again shortly. Below the Line, the Federal Election 2022, brought to you by La Trobe University, with The Conversation. Mr Howard called me to offer his congratulations. The people have spoken, but it's going to take a little while to determine exactly what they've said. You obviously enjoyed hearing it, so let me say it again. The Government of Australia has changed. We have every confidence that we will form a coalition majority government I have always believed in miracles. Yeah.